Hello, this is Caleb Farley with the Lawrence County Public Library in Louisa, Kentucky, and thanks for checking out our genealogy podcast. It is April 23rd, 2020, and in this first episode, we'll be discussing the online genealogy services we offer through the library. We'll listen to an interview I did with local retired school teacher Joy Hillman, and we'll go over some news articles and advertisements from Louise's past. If you happen to hear a dog barking or whining in the background, um, we are working from home with the coronavirus pandemic that's going on, and I have a almost one-year-old part chihuahua puppy named Jellybean that thinks I am going insane because Dad is now sitting in the living room talking to himself and recording it. So, if you hear any weird noises in the background, that's what it is. So if you go to our website, we have buttons going across the top of the page, and you can access the genealogy collection by using the genealogy drop-down. Over the past year, I've been converting the Kentucky Oral History Commission oral history cassettes that we have over to digital, and you can find them on our uh, oral history collection. That's where we'll also be posting our new oral history interviews. We found these cassettes... Um, I think it was back in the spring of last year, we were getting ready for the renovation that's going on, and we found these almost like shoe boxes full of these old interviews. And, you know, we got some equipment to convert them over to digital, and I've been working on cleaning them up for the past year. Something I've been working on with a company out of Oklahoma called OCI is the Lawrence County Digital Yearbook Collection. Uh, we have a large collection of the high school yearbooks at our library, and what OCI does is they take these yearbooks and they digitize them. They convert them over to PDF, and they're in high-quality color, every page is scanned. Um, you're able to search them, so if you know someone's name that you're looking for, you can pull up the PDF, uh, pull up the search option, and type their name in and find where they are in the book. We've got... 1950 through 2019 on their website, except for 1995 and 1996. Um, right now, OCI is digitizing 1929 through 49, except for a couple years in the 30s, 95 and 96. Um, we're hoping to find the ones in the 30s that we're missing, but I have a feeling they may have not even made those years. I'm not certain, though. But as far the furthest we have back is 1929. Um, as last I heard from OCI, they are still doing digitizing. So hopefully here in the next month or so, we'll be able to get those back and get those posted on the website. We also have access to Ancestry's library edition called Heritage Quest Online. Uh, it has over 4 billion records, including census collections, books, city directories, military records, wills and probate records, and others. Um... The census records go up to 1940 right now. Uh, 1950 will be released in 2022. Uh, it's a great start for looking into your family history. The downside to it, though, you're not able to actually build your family tree through it. You can just look at records. If you do want to build a family tree, though, um, we are an affiliated library with FamilySearch.org, so we have access to additional records if you access FamilySearch through inside the library. So... You can't get those extra records right now, but once we're reopened, you can come in and access them that way. We do have cemetery records on our website. Back in the 1990s, the cemeteries in Lawrence County were cataloged, 
and organized into five separate volumes. And there's a sixth volume. It's a locator list. Um, these are published on our website, as well as the Kurt Wright Funeral Home Records from 27 to 72, and the Pine Hill Cemetery Records as of 2007. If you're looking for obituaries, we do have the obituaries in the Big Sandy News, the local newspaper, indexed from 1885 up until current. Um, I have a spreadsheet that I update every week when the Big Sandy comes out. Um, everything from 1885 through 2019 is in four separate volumes of PDFs. Um, these are going to be posted on the website here shortly. The indexing is done by the last names first, and the dates that they're listed under aren't the dates that the person died, but when the obituary actually appears in the, the Big City News. So you're not going to find that specific date when they died, but you will be able to find the obituary um, saying, you know, when, when they actually died, when they are born, who their family was. The last genealogy resource that we have is the genealogy Facebook page. Uh, if you go to facebook.com slash lcplgen or just look for Lawrence County Public Library Genealogy, you can find it there. That's where I post updates about the genealogy collection, post photos of old Lawrence County. Um, we're hoping to get some of the people identified in them and also take genealogy requests. Um, you can send me a message on Facebook that way or you can send me an email at caleb at lcplky.org. So up next is the oral history interview I did with Joy Hillman. Uh, Joy is the paternal grandmother of the library's director, Carly Pelfrey. She is a retired school teacher from Wayne and Lawrence County. And one of the stories that she talks about um, is something I plan on doing, hopefully in one of the future episodes of the podcast. It's an interesting story out of Lawrence County that I've read some articles on that it kind of reached national news. Um, so, enjoy. This is Caleb Farley with the Lawrence County Public Library. I'm doing an oral history recording with Joy Hillman. She is a retired school teacher from Wayne County who also taught in Lawrence County for a few years. It is April 22nd, 2020. Joy, are you ready to go? Yes. Okay. Um, could you tell me a little bit about your family background? Yes, my parents were Lando and Evel Ball Clevenger. My grandparents were Elbert and Eliza Holbrook Clevenger, and Andrew and Martha Ball, Martha Webb Ball. And we, according to Dan Ball, who was an attorney here in Louisa, we are descendants of George Washington's mother, who was a Ball. And my great-great-uncle, Sylvester Ball, was a county judge many, many years ago. And I have three sons, Don, Dean, and Scott. Scott, who passed away in 2008 from ALS. I have uh, five grandchildren and four great-grandchildren. Now, the person you mentioned that was a uh, county attorney, was that here in Lawrence County? Yes, Dan Ball. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, could you tell me about growing up? Yes. Uh, I was born here in Lawrence County, and at three months old, my parents moved to Logan County, West Virginia, where I grew up until I was 13. And then my great-grandparents wrote them a letter telling them they needed help and would give them 
their farm on Cooksey Fork. So we moved to Cooksey Fork when I was 13. There were no, the roads were dirt in the summer, mud in the winter. And my dad was a coal miner, so he got a job at Hitchens, Kentucky. And mother, my sister, and I lived there on Cooksey Fork. And uh, my sister, who was much younger than I, went to the one-room school, which was called Polly's Chapel, which is right, right below our house. And one thing I want to mention during this time when we moved there was a very notable event, one of the most, I think, of Lawrence County. Maddie Large, who was 78, and Shorty Sprouse, who was 18, got married. My mother had a, a Jeep four-wheel drive, and she took people to Louisa all the time. Well, she took Maddie and Shorty not knowing they were going to get married. So that was a great event, and they were exploited by businessmen taken to New York. And But that was a big event for Lawrence County. Yeah, I've, I've heard stories about it. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. And then, then later we got a gravel road, and when we did, we had a Tony Webb, who had a store in the Brammer Gap area, would bring his big truck through, and he was called a huckster. And the people would uh, save their eggs and so on and trade for groceries. And the old age people, older people, got what was called an old age pension. And so those are some of the things I remember from the summer that I lived on Cooksey Fork. And then I went to, since there were no buses, I went to Hitchens, where Daddy was, and lived with my aunt and uncle and did my freshman year. And later, for my sophomore and first semester of my junior year, I went to a boarding school called Erie at Olive Hill, Kentucky. Then I came back to Webville for my second semester and went to school there, and that was the year that Webville School burned. So you want the rest of my education? Yeah. Um, could you just tell me about your experiences in education? Um, after Webville School burned, where did you go? I got married. Oh, okay. But uh, but then uh, when I was like 28, I, I took the GED and passed it. Then I started to Moorhead. And then I had 17 hours, I started substituting. My first substitute was at Blaine. And this sounds kind of ridiculous, but when I went in that classroom, I knew that's where I belonged. <laughs> and so I went ahead and got two years of college, and you could teach then on two years. And so I went to Fort Gay over in West Virginia and taught. I got my degree from Moorhead. Then I got a master's from uh, Marshall and did postgraduate work from UK and Marshall. And I've worked 50 years in education, teacher and an administrator, for 50 years. I retired in 1994 and became a substitute. And the most notable thing for me was when I was teaching at Tulsa High School, 
And I asked this little boy if he knew Joe Fred Doss, and he said, yes. I said, is that your dad? And he said, no, that's my grandpa. And I had Joe Fred in the fifth grade. Oh, so I was God. teaching the grandchildren of my <laughs> former students. <laughs> oh, wow, teaching three generations. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, what You said you did some administrative work. What kind of work did you do? I was director of special education in Wayne County. And when Paul Wright was superintendent, he called and asked me if I would come to Lawrence County and set up the special education program. So Wayne County gave me a leave of absence, and I stayed here three years. And I set up what is the present special education program here in Lawrence County. Oh, wow. What was your, what was the initial reason that you wanted to go into education? I had no reason. I just wanted to go to school. <laughs> and, and so uh, my husband, he said, you've got the car, you go. So I did. And then I just became a professional student, I guess, because I had a master's plus 45 when I mm-hmm. finished. Did you like it at Moorhead? That's the university I went to. Oh, I love it. Oh, I love it. It's a great town. Mm-hmm. Um, changing topics a little bit. Um, you know, one of the reasons we're doing these oral histories over the phone right now is because of the current coronavirus pandemic. Um, yes. We can't really do anything in person. Um, how do you think this current pandemic is going to change education? I think that it will lead to distance learning more technology used, and one thing I think that it would change parents' opinions of teachers Mm -hmm. since they've had to do homeschooling, but I think more technology will be used in the future because I don't think this is the end of this virus. Right. Um, One of the things I've seen online is this little joke going around like teachers Whatever you need next year, uh-huh. you're more than welcome to it. I'll send you, if you need 20 boxes of pencils, it's yours. <laughs> yes, I saw that. And I saw where uh, three students had been expelled and the teacher had been fired for drinking on the job. I've seen that one, too. <laughs> and I saw somebody I trying to figure out how to do uh, in-school suspension while working from home. <laughs> yes, um, how do you think the current pandemic is going to change life in general, not just education? Life, uh, well, I think that uh, the medical profession will be more aware and uh, more conducive to research, but it concerns me how the people will react. How diligent will we be in being um trying to avoid the disease. Mm -hmm. That's really a concern of mine. Will we continue to wear gloves? I don't think we will. I Mm -hmm. will. Oh, for sure. I don't plan on shaking anybody's hand for a long time. (laughs) I don't either. And I won't be hugging. When we go to the grocery store and we see somebody, we hug. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think that, I think that, Life is is really going to be changed. I don't think mm-hmm. we're ever going to know it as we have known it. Yeah. Um, I have a friend that works for Kroger um, in another state, and he said, I asked him if they plan on continuing the six-foot uh, distance after everything is over with. And he said, from what they've heard, that's something they're going to keep 
trying to enforce even after everything is yes. over with, which I think is yes. a good idea. Just because you never know when anything's going to break out again. Well, they have predicted that it will break out again in the fall. Mm-hmm. Now, are we going to continue? Here's I've, I've uh, wiped everything off that I bring in the house with the bleach cloth. Mm-hmm. My doorknobs, everything. Wash mm-hmm. my hands over and over. Are we going to continue? Are we going to be that diligent? I hope so. I know I've already had one friend that she lives in another state, but she's recovered from coronavirus. So, I mean, it's it's a real thing. It's a real threat. And the stories she told were awful. Yeah. Well, you know, my son Dean had stage four cancer. Mm-hmm. And he was healed completely. He's completely free. But his immune system, he doesn't have an immune system. Mm-hmm. And he owns his own truck, and he hauls uh, steel to mm-hmm. South Carolina and Florida. And right now he doesn't have any work. Mm-hmm. But what's going to happen with him? You know, how's mm-hmm. he going to contend well, yeah. with it? Yeah, well, it's like, you know, my mother, she has a one of the medicines that she's on, we, it purposely weakens her immune system. Uh-huh. And if I end up catching something while I'm out and bring it home to her, uh-huh. it could be a death sentence for her. You never know. Uh-huh. Well, see, there's my Everly, who mm-hmm. everybody knows I worship, mm-hmm. have not been with her. Carly comes in the car, and I go out and stand at the window. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and just to be clear for whoever's listening to this on down the road, Carly is Carly... Um, Pelfrey. She is Joy's granddaughter, and Everly is her great-granddaughter. <laughs> <laughs> and she's adorable. <laughs> the light of my life. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, next thing I was going to ask is, how has have you noticed Lawrence County change over the years? Okay. Years ago, I mean, when I was young, downtown Louisa had clothing stores. We called them department stores, grocery stores. It was just a hub of activity. We went to town for the 4th of July and had the blue ribbon ice cream. And everybody gathered in the courthouse yard. Well, now we have parades. But on the other hand, we have good restaurants. We have antique stores. We have the Dollar General store. We have a college. We have better roads better school facilities, and and have a unique coffee shop and a store where art local artists display their works for sale. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it's, I think it's, uh, of course it is a much better place. We have mm-hmm. the Walmart Shopping Center, which some people don't like, but it's there and it's good. And to have a college in our town. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's Louise is starting to bounce back. I think we're starting mm-hmm. to get a lot more stuff coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I mm-hmm. think one thing that is detrimental to our society is the texting, and and so many technology, so much technology. You know, with games that our young people stay on the computer or whatever, mm-hmm. and we don't make phone calls. I don't get phone calls. I get text messages. I want to talk to my people. 
Yeah, that that is one thing else I've noticed. It's it's a lot more impersonal now. It's a lot easier to send somebody a text than to call them up. Yeah, I know. I have friends that we don't text. We talk on the phone. Mm-hmm. But I have some dear sweet relatives that send me text messages. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, and the main thing that we have is our state of the art library. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a very nice library. We're currently undergoing renovation. Um, I'm in one of the study rooms right now, and it's mostly soundproof, but I really hope they don't pick up the uh, construction workers singing in the background because they're a little off pitch. <laughs> uh, well. And, you know, um, I think another thing that we're going to be having is robots. I think it's going to be very prevalent. Mm-hmm. I do, too. Um, no. I saw there's it's some kind of ultraviolet light cleaning robot that hospitals are using right now um, to clean rooms after corona patients have been in it. Mm-hmm. It's like it moves in and it turns on all these bright lights and it somehow kills whatever viruses are in there and it moves on to the next room. It was really interesting. Well, you know, I read J.D. Robb book mm-hmm. and it's, it's uh, the, the stories take place in like 2050 something Mm -hmm. like that. And it's all of these robots that are used. Hmm. That's very interesting. Mm -hmm. I'll have to check those out. Um, Last question, do you have any stories or thoughts that you'd like to leave us with? Well, I'd like to say that I'm so thankful for 87 years Mm -hmm. and, and my wonderful family and friends, good health, and just a simple life. On page 3 of the April 28, 1887 issue of the Big Sandy News is an article titled Paid the Penalty with a drawing of a man with a mustache on top of it. This person is Pud Markham. He was the last person in Lawrence County to be hung, and the article is as follows. On the afternoon of February 10, 1886, Fisher Markham, all unsuspicious of any danger, was walking alone in a field near the house of his mother. It was a cold, bleak day with two or three inches of snow on the ground. No one was in his sight when the crack of a rifle disturbed the chill air and the unfortunate man fell to the earth, pierced with ball. A brother heard the report of the gun and ran out to learn the cause, only to find his kinsman writhing in his agony. He was asked, Who did it? Pud shot me, was the answer and to this statement he adhered when his physician told him his wound was mortal and again asked who fired the fatal shot. He lived until about nine o'clock that night. Search was made for the tracks in the snow when it was discovered that two men had been in ambush and that the tracks were made by a man or men wearing peculiar shoes. Suspicious fell upon James H. Markham, better known as Pud Markham, and search was made for him. He was found at the house of Frank Burton, distant some nine miles from the scene of the tragedy. His wife's brother, Tom Carter, was also arrested, and upon him were found the shoes bearing the notable mark. Both men were brought to Louisa and lodged in jail. At the June term of the Lawrence County Criminal Court, both were indicted and tried for the murder. It is not necessary now to say anything of the evidence. It was in a measure circumstantial, but no link in the chain was wanting. The prosecution was conducted by Commonwealth Attorney S.G. Kenner, ably assisted by K.F. Pritchard and G.W. Castle. The defense was as ably managed by Alexander Lackey and Jerry Rife. 
The jury was composed of the following gentlemen. William Taylor, William Howe, George Wooten, John Burgess, Elijah Gamble, John Ramey, Lee Small, Marion Stone, Jesse Garden, Absalom Ruggles, Thomas Kaz, and August Snyder. Their verdict was guilty, and Pud was sentenced to be hanged on the 22nd of the following October. From this judgment, the defense appealed, but the Court of Appeals saw fit not to disturb the verdict, and the governor sentenced him to be hanged on the 29th of April, 1887. Up to last Tuesday, Pud stoutly maintained his innocence, adhering to his own testimony given on his trial. But on that day, he placed in his hands of his spiritual advisors a full and complete confession of his awful crime. For this crime, he today died on the scaffold in this presence of nearly 300 people, men, women, and children. Tom Carter is now serving a life sentence in the penitentiary and not having dared to risk the terrible uncertainty of another trial. During Markham's last days on earth, he had benefit of the advice and administrations of Reverend Suddeth, Cook, Locke, Stratton, and Sneed, and there is every reason to believe that the poor wretch sought and obtained forgiveness for his crimes. He evidently entertained some hope of commutation or respite, but this was blighted when he received the following letter from Governor Knott. Executive Department, Frankfurt, April 25, 1887 James H. Markham Sir, I have examined the record in your case with the care and deliberation demanded by the awful circumstances by which you were surrounded, and while I sympathize with you most profoundly, I regret to have to say that I have been unable to find anything that would sufficiently justify my interfering with the verdict of the jury who, upon their oaths, pronounced you guilty to the exclusion of a reasonable doubt. I can, therefore, only commend you to the mercy of the divine being before whom we both must appear, trusting that you have availed yourself of his blessed promise to our fallen race. Very truly, J. Proctor Knott. His mother and sister bade him farewell yesterday afternoon, but his wife remained with him until this morning. Their mingled cries and prayers could be heard all around the public square, strangely mixed with the noise made by strolling musicians, peddlers, and vendors of patent medicines. A reporter visited Pud in his cell early this morning and found him all broken up. He was unable to eat any breakfast, and it was dollars to cents that he would have to be carried to the gallows. But a wonderful change came over him, and soon he was as calm and collected as any man ever was under such awful circumstances. He dressed himself with care in the neat black suit furnished him, spoke with resignation of his rapidly approaching and ignominious death, named the hymns he desired sung, and was minute in his directions regarding the disposition of his effects. At twenty minutes past twelve, he was placed in a two-horse spring wagon, attended by Sheriff Shannon, Deputy Davis Wellman, Reverend L. H. Suddeth, and Dr. Roten, who had been summoned by the sheriff to attend in his professional capacity. Surrounded by well-armed guards and an immense crowd of people, the wagon was driven to the gallows, which had been erected in this hollow, this side of Pine Hill. Along the route, Pud conversed cheerfully with his attendants, betraying not the slightest emotion when the horrible machinery of death met his gaze. He ascended the steps firmly, seated himself in a chair, and composedly waited while the solemn ceremonies began. On the scaffold were Sheriff Shannon, Reverends Cook, Locke, Suddeth, Rice, and Stratton, Doctors Sense and Roten and Jerry Rife. Dark as the night was sung, after which Reverend Suddeth offered a touching and eloquent prayer. After prayer, the crowning day is coming was sung. In both songs, the criminal heartily joined, singing in a clear, strong voice. 
He then stepped forward and in distinct tones spoke the following words to the crowd. Gentlemen, I appear before you today for the first time in my life and for the last time. I have sinned against God, but I feel that He has forgiven me and that I am going to rest. To those who are growing up, let this be a warning. I want my clothing given to Milt Burns and want him to give them to my wife. He then said goodbye to all on the scaffold, many others coming up to wave farewell to him. The sheriff then pinioned his arms and legs, adjusted the rope around his neck, and pulled down the hideous black cape which forever shut out from his gaze the light of this earth. At six minutes past one, Andy Shannon pulled a fatal lever, and like a lump of lead, the body of Pud Markham fell six feet and hung motionless between the heavens and the earth. Not the slightest contraction or tremor could be seen in the body. The pulse beat 13 minutes when he was pronounced dead by the physicians, Dr. Roten, Bussey, and York, but he was allowed to remain nine minutes longer. The body was then taken down and placed in a neat coffin and turned over to his friends. By them, it was taken to the Falls of Blaine, where, according to request, it will be buried beside his father next Monday. An examination revealed the fact that the fall had broken his neck. The features were very much distorted. The crowd began to come yesterday. They came all night, and by 10 o'clock, fully 3,000 people were here. Until after the execution, there was no disorder. Late in the afternoon, however, whiskey got in as a devilish work, and the lockup was soon full. An efficient special police force had been sworn in, and they did much to preserve order. As we write this tonight, the town is quiet, nearly everyone having gone home. Thus has ended the second legal hanging in which occurred in Lawrence County, and let us hope that there may never be cause for a third. In the published confession of Pud Markham, there is a remark made by him which may create an erroneous impression concerning Jailer Vinson. Mr. Vinson did no great wrong to Pud Markham. He has sworn to do his duty, and the discharge of that duty he saw fit to exercise a wholesome supervision over the multitude of visitors to the jail. For this he is to be commended. In the same issue, there's a couple notices that I thought were interesting. The first one reads, The gallows on which Markham was executed was built by George Pig, our poor housekeeper, and under the supervision of Dr. Cease. The drop was an improved model of the one which took out the assassin Guiteau out of the world. There's also a notice. Parties owning hogs will remember that on the 1st of May, they must be put up in pens with dry floors. It is not the desire of the Board of Health to cause anyone trouble, but those who fail to do this will be prosecuted. By the order of the Board, F.W. Weiss, Health Officer. One of the advertisements in the issue reads, For plows, plow points, rakes, hoes, shovels, forks, mowing machines, and all kinds of agricultural implements, call on Snyder Brothers, the leading hardware dealer. Number 5 Enterprise Block, Louisa, Kentucky. One of the advertisements in the issue reads, Why did the women of this country use over 13 million cakes of Procter & Gamble's Linux soap in 1886? Buy a cake of Linux and you will soon understand why. In a lot of older newspapers, you'll see advertisements for different kinds of medicines. Um, one featured in this issue is called Swain's Ointment. It says, Throat and Lung Troubles Conquered by Swain's Wild Cherry. Swain's Vermifuge, the Children's Medicine. Swain's Panacea purifies syphilitic blood, and London Hair Restorer of Swain and Sons. It says to keep healthy, exercise daily, eat good food, be cheerful, and use Swain's pills. The great cure for itching piles and skin humor prepared only by Dr. Swain and Sons, Philadelphia, the oldest medicines in U.S. sold by druggists.
There's also Harder's, the only true iron tonic. Will purify the blood, regulate the liver and kidneys. So that brings our first episode of the Lawrence County Public Library Genealogy Podcast to a close. Hopefully you all got to learn some stuff about Lawrence County, some local history, some of the resources that we have. The plan is to do the podcast as a monthly release, so we'll get a new oral history every month. I'll do some local history with it, go over some tips and tricks you can do online or in our library once we reopen. Uh, hope to hear from you all. If you all have any questions or comments, shoot me an email. My email is caleb, C-A-L-E-B, at lcplky.org. Um, look forward to hearing from you. I do take genealogy requests, so if you need help finding anything, feel free to send me a message. You all have a great day. Mm-hmm.